I think we're live. I'm going to continue from where I uh, left off. And um, I just got to refresh my mind because it's been a couple of days now. Uh, we're talking about the, the last of the stone mills. The miller. Oh, yes, he was talking about this, the, the mill, the miller and the, the mills that have been put, taken down, if I remember. Um, so this is a continuation. I hope you can pick this up from where we were. Here is an extract from the letter of a millstone dresser himself. Talking of uh, mills, by the way, Julia and I had a, a sort of lightly, a light-hearted shufti um, around Woods Mill, which is the um, a, one of the uh, Sussex Wildlife Trusts. I think their headquarters are there. And the, the Woods Mill, referencing a mill, we saw a millstone set in the ground. Anyway, here's an extract from a letter from a millstone dresser himself. It's taken a war to reveal to every country loving individual the vital part the local water mill is still capable of achieving. Every factory nowadays displays a notice exhorting operatives to save power. Yet, sad to mention that when we take a walk in the country, many a ghost is encountered in the shape of a ruined mill with water power running to waste. By the way of introducing myself, I am a millstone dresser, having put in a lifetime into mills up and down the country and having tended and dressed all kinds of stone, including the almost forgotten French burr wheat stone, on which our ancestors made good wholesome flour which supplied the stamina needed by the island race. After dismissing roller mill flour as a fraud, he continues in his letter, My father, who owned a county mill, sorry, a country mill, often remarked of English wheat that there was none to compare with it. Look, for instance, at the time it takes... Look, at the, look for instance, at the time it takes to mature... I can just remember seeing him making flour of wheat gleaned from the harvest field by the labourers' wives and he being content to take the bran as payment, the farmers having to pay per sack. Another thing while on the subject, anyone who can remember the process can also call to mind the smell and taste awakened. The very atmosphere was laden with the savoury appetising flavour but you never feel tempted at the packing end of a modern flour mill. No, I bet you don't. I'm still employed in the milling trade, but I regret to say not on millstone work, which called for skill, ranking, almost on a level with some of the characters you picture. Something of the extraordinary versatility of the country craftsman was revealed in the 18-page letter of this, mills, of this millstone dresser. He gave me an elaborate description of the geological differences between the granite French burstone and the gritstone peak from Derbyshire, mainly used for grinding grist for cattle, and of the correspondingly different techniques for dressing them. He enlarged upon what the blacksmith had to do in drawing out and tempering the steel blade of the thrift or dressing tool as though he were one himself. He gave a detailed account of how he used to lift the runner and the bedstone from their position in order to dress the furrows. And I felt I might have been reading a description of how the trilithons of Stonehenge, of Stonehenge were moved. He wrote like an expert about timber work of the mill and the water pigments used in order to expose the grinding face of the stones. He had a great respect for the age of many of the stones that he had worked, well in the prime, well in their prime in Lord Nelson's time, and having been a dresser in Dorset, gave the Thomas gave the Thomas Hardy as well as the map names for the places that he had worked and loved. He made it clear that to be a good dresser it was necessary to understand the structure, the carpeting and the engineering of the watermill as a whole. His father, who had been delighted to think that his son had adopted his love of the occupation, had not only 
been the owner of a mill, but a cabinet maker who, throughout his life over ninety years, had retained a love of woodwork, and had himself put in a new overshot water wheel and geared it to steam power. Our former craftsman, in fact, knew without the aid of books or research everything there was to be known about their own particular countrysides. From the country miller to the country baker, Mister Middleton of Padbury near Buckingham, with whom I took tea in the autumn of nineteen forty-four, he is a traditional craftsman, and Padbury. Is a village mentioned in the Doomsday Book. It still retains many substantial cottages of discreet half-timbering, brick, and colour wash, with thatched roofs of chevroned ridgeboards, in the style of Norfolk reed thatching, strung at wide intervals along the minor road. This, together with good stewardship of All Souls College, has saved Padbury from being swamped. By the mean jerry-built stuff that has been the fate of so many villages, in his village, Mister Middleton takes so proper a pride that he is, by way of becoming its local historian, tracing its fortunes and changes from the earliest times. He showed me an enclosure award map more than six feet high, the account book. Of Hillesden Manor in 1658, with an entry recording a 30 shillings tithe payment to one Samuel Pepys, a kinsman presumably of the diarist, and the copybook of his grandfather, who was also a baker. But these antiquarian pursuits were more of a recreation; they were significant for his work. In the baking room was a large brick oven. The bricks of who the bricks of whose sides were white with heat and age, and they were eighty years old, and floor tiles, which had still and are locally made by hand at Chalfont Saint Peter in the same county, to hold the heat, they are made of an extremely soft clay which can only be manipulated by hand. At the side of this handsome oven was a small furnace fed by. Beech faggots and coal, whose damper, by means of the draught, throws out a tongue of flame over the oven's tiled floor. The only technical difference from the modern steam heater is that it has to be refuelled with each batch of loaves or cakes, though less and less so after the first and second. There was also a small electric dough mixer worked off a belt. These details are not trivial. On the contrary, the whole baking room was a modern version of the of the cottage brick oven, improving the best of the past without violently breaking the continuity between past and present. Before a batch was put in, the oven was swept with a scuttle instead of old style with a mop. What was still more important, this development in. Contradistinction from progress still left ample latitude for the craftsman for craftsmanship in baking. The bakehouse was a vivid illustration of what is maintained throughout the book: that craftsmanship is the only force in the world to control and utilize the machine, instead of the machine controlling the worker and robbing him of his skill and pleasure in his work. Consequently, I found the conversation with Mister Middleton very interesting. He is not only a craftsman, but what is more rarer even than this, a young one. I sought his views on on whole grain bread, and he had a penetrating knowledge of breads and bread making that older men may envy. These views were exactly what I expected from such a man. He had no he had no illusions about the white loaf. But though he cured himself of an illness with authentic bread, he had to bake germless flour for lack of all but six customers for the real. We both asked each other, "Why do people prefer white bread, which is not bread at all but a facade? Why sacrifice the stomach to the eye, especially?" He said, 
as they like black cakes. He told me how his father, also a baker, had had to bake the new flour, first ground on porcelain rollers on the Hungarian model in about 1870 because white bread had been adopted on the next round but his. But how? First the squire took it, then the parson, and then the whole village. But why? For this, for this was in the days before the tin opener. Perhaps it was that when taste in beauty went in the last century, taste in food followed. At any rate, the young craftsman's taste in both was uncorrupted. He knew food values as well as all the rights of way in his parish and all the details of the poor remnants of the country crafts that still exist in his village. He was a craftsman, and the craftsman can always be trusted to know the difference between the true and the false. And perhaps he was a craftsman, respect, and because he was a craftsman, craftsman, respect for the past went hand in hand with enlightenment in the present and for the future. Just pause there for a second. High Wycombe, A40, went from two lanes to one lane plus giant shrubbery pots in the middle, especially good as our A&E maternity units closed and it's ten miles to Stoke Mandeville now. Oh, thanks Ben Reed for that. Hello Richard, says Ben Beaumont. Uh, how healthy can it be cycling among the fumes and pollution? Love some of your videos, by the way. Thank you, uh, Beau Beaumont, that's very kind of you. I may have said Ben, did I? I didn't mean to. Hazel say, got that going on too, no consultation. It's going to mean more traffic coming down my road, yes. Uh, I hate graffiti of any description. It's all vandalism to me, says Audrey Forbes. Boris should be on a bike with Biden. Yeah, that's true. Nigel says the new cycle lanes are supposed to attract people away from their cars and onto their bikes over many months so the traffic is reduced and also the fumes. Yes, I'd like to see that. I wonder how many people travelling from Horsham to Worthing or from Brighton to Worthing or from Chichester to Worthing will decide that 20 miles, two hours on a bike is what they're going to do to work and another two hours back in all weathers. I don't think they will be doing it, to be honest with you. I think for local for local traffic and local stuff, that will be all right. But people, you know, they commute to where their work is and not always the work is nearby. Uh, Roland Millwood says, Good afternoon, Vobes fans. Good afternoon, Roland. James uh, Poulton says, Cycled for only 40 years, nearly 69, but averaged 120 miles a week and same weight as when I was 21. Well, you need to eat more. Uh, <laughs> I jest, of course. Well done for you, sir. Um, Ed Loud says, Well done, James. I'm not even the same weight I was last month. Blimey. Uh, yes, certainly is, says Lee Lawson. This must be interesting. Oh, yes, interesting because L Lee Lawson, by the way, has an amazing uh, bread oven in her house. It used to be a bakery. And um, so I don't know how much of that related to your um, oven, but that it, it, presumably there were things that made you think, I, at least I hope. Um, Graham Cast says, James, over any racing... To do this, they're all on about the cycling. Okay, we'll carry on. This is part two of chapter three. I think we're on chapter three, isn't it? Chapter three. No, chapter four. This is chapter four. I didn't realise. Cobbett always insisted upon a balanced intercourse between town and country in the mun mutuality of needs. The canals before the railways partially paralysed them, and the industrial towns had outgrown and paralysed their rural neighbours acted as the intermediaries, 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 intermediaries. It's funny, when you start reading and you look at the word and you suddenly realise words that you can, when you don't think about them, pronounce, you're fine with, and then when you're trying to read them, intermediaries, uh, you suddenly struggle because you're looking at all the letters. Uh, and I've lost the essence of what I was saying. I'm sorry about that. The canals before the railways partially paralysed them and the industrial towns had outgrown and paralysed their rural neighbours, acted as the intermediaries... I've done it again. Intermediaries in the exchange of local needs. The traffickers on them brought country produce as well as took coal. 
Are we talking about the canals still? And urban manufacturers. Hen- yes. Hence the bargemen reveal vestiges of the same interplay between art and business, which was the mark of all their rural craftsmanship. One of the purest and most unalloyed pleasures of my life is to receive, from time to time, additions to my collection of bygones of husbandry and rural industries. They come to me from all quarters. They are always unexpected, and I rarely know the senders. The pleasure of the object itself has been enhanced by the manner of its coming. Yes, I can, I can well believe that, because people do send me stuff from time to time, from all over. And sometimes it may just be a tiny little thing, and, and it's, a, you know, it's a pleasure that somebody somewhere has thought of you and sent it to you, and it becomes... It ha- it's embroiled with more than just what the original thing is. It is incredible. One such was brought to me in the spring of 1944... It is a richly ornamental stool made and painted by a boat builder of our canals, Herbert Tooley of Banbury, the very same person that we read about, if you were with me then, that LTC wrote about when Cressy, his narrow boat, was painted and he waited weeks as he was doing it up for Henry Tooley of Banbury to paint it because he was in Banbury. I don't know whether you remember that. Um... But that was he was one of the last, and it's about the same sort of time, which is curious. The stool has no legs, and the two the stool has no legs, and the two sides that support it are themselves wide curved panels of wood offering nearly as broad a surface as the paintbrush as the top surface, while the strips of wood along the two open sides are likewise painted. The design itself is an arrangement of roses and their leaves painted in yellow, light green, a a dark, lustrous red maroon and a mauvey pink, blue and cream white on the dark green background. And the surface, the panelled sides and the strips at right angles to them are each painted with a different pattern. The gaiety, the liveliness, the richness and sureness of these paintings on a stool, not more than about 18 inches high, light up the whole room, while the paints used are of the freshest and clearest, no muddly muddlingness anywhere. You get something, you get the same, you get something of the same felicity of sheer colour in Bruegel's rich paintings of the homeliest country scenes. La Motion, for for instance, I'm sure I've murdered that. In, and in the 18th century, Chino Sereri. And I know I've not pronounced that correctly. There is a charming border of flower lines... Sorry. There is a charming border of flowing lines round the top surface of this glowing little stool, which is not unlike Chinese calligraphy. The curved lines are in harmony with the rounded shapes of the roses, as is the dancing border with the the, uh, the, uh, vivacity vivacity of colouring. The boatman who made and painted this joyous, joyous thing is not known to the art schools. He does not call himself an artist, but a boat builder. I should imagine it's extremely doubtful whether he has so much heard of the word art. How, then, did he come to paint these exquisite pictures on my stool? And what is more, in a series of formal designs? The answer is that he did so because he was a canal boat builder, which will not be an answer at all... um, which will not be an answer at all intelligible to the art critic. But it is perfectly intelligible to any countryman with memory. This unknown painter of the canal boat trade, one of the very last of his kind, paints like a master because it it has been the tradition of his particular trade to do so. Before, that is to say, the canal's were sabotaged by the railways before the individual owners of the boats were bought out by the companies. It is no exaggeration to say that every small owner along the waterways 
was a painter every bit as good as he who has conferred so brilliant a gift upon me. We know that this is true because the rose design and the castle design are traditional. As well as roses, these small owners used to paint the doors of their barges with romantic castles of the gayest colouring. The castle and the rose were conventions belonging to the boatman alone, and for a man not to paint castles and roses on his floating home was to be less than a man. Some months after receiving this stall, I spent the night on one of those boats moored in the Gloucester-Birmingham Canal. The view across the rolling country to a long-drawn, richly moulded horizon of the Abberley Hills to the west and along the indented line of the Clees, uh, as far as the shaggy brow of the Wire Forest to the north, and in the middle distance the needle spire of Bromsgrove Church magnetised the broken country and gave it orderliness of its own. The foreground was various with orchard slopes. Now, beautifully, the vessel itself, Viking-like with its high bows and long lines, responded to the plentitude and diversity of the landscape. For everywhere, on the walls, on the cabin's door, on the dipper, on the watering can standing on the forecastle, and everywhere the boat was adorned in this folk art. The big watering can was crowded with the rose design of every inch of it, even on the hinge of the curved handle. The castle motif was painted both as a mural in the cabin and on the back of a tray. It was the oddest thing to see a French or Dutch chateau, complete with flanking towers and pepper-pot turrets, rising gigantic and rocco above furry trees girdling a lake and a cottage with a blue roof embosomed, em, embosomed on them. What did the old canal men know about the French chateau? Did perhaps the Dutch boatman hand them on to our men? This, at any rate, was the form their fancy took, faithful from generation to generation. Nothing could seem more prosaic than horse-pulling a barge-like boat from town to town carrying coals or flour. But the romance of the long winding reaches, the gliding countryside, the open air, the free life, and above all, the romance of ownership was theirs, and they expressed, they expressed the goodness of these things by their folk art, by their castles and their roses. These barges are, in fact, related to Cleopatra's barge on the Sidnus, and both descend, no doubt, from the painted Nile ships of Queen Hatshepsut, or something, and her forerunners. Mr Frederick Burgess gives a few rare examples of the Oculus still painted on silicon boats. Sicilian boats, not silicon. Sicilian boats, that's my mistake. And the conventionalised here by a star or diamond. He also suggests that the elaborate designs of landscape and foliation owe much to, Stra to Staffordshire pottery. Again, my friend L.T.C. Rolt, who has intimate knowledge of canal life, boats and boatmen, tells me that the interior layout of the boat cabin is identical with that of the Reading type of gypsy wagon. He conjectures the influence of the land nomad upon the water nomad was derived from gypsy casual labour on canal construction, when the first, the Bridgewater Canal, was cut and the mosses was cut across the mosses near Manchester, at the time open heathland and much frequented by gypsies. He supports this contention by the fact that boatman decoration that boat decoration is confined to the canals. The navigable river boatman has no such connection with the Diddycoys and never painted his boats. But whatever the origins of painting boats on the canals, this folk art itself is as old as the seafaring man.
It was once common to all mankind in every land and every clime, varying only according to the strength and self-expression of national characteristics, and particularly healthy and vigorous and widely diffused in our own people. The destruction of this universal art sense in mankind has only been made possible because a man's joy in his ordinary work has become a thing of the past. The lock-keeper near the barge where I spent the night told my friend, who owns it, that in the old days lock-gates were changed in a day. Now we take a week. Men worked from 5am to 8pm, often though having to walk three miles to the lock. On a summer's morning they would arrive at 3 or 4am. But then, he said, everyone took an interest. Now they all think of this. Now all they think of is how much in the pocket at the end of the week. It was out of that joy in work that ordinary men made objects like this richly decorated stool of mine which communicates its joyousness to me and lights up the whole room. Well, that's, that's incredible. And, and there you go. I bet it was uh, Rolt that sent him the stool because he talks about... It may be the stool that he wrote about in the book. That would be amazing. Um, Hat Shepastu was an intriguing female pharaoh. Thank you very much. I can't pronounce her name. I'm sorry about that. I drove past that chateau last week, says uh, TurboStream. Did you indeed? Is it, uh, is it in the middle of Birmingham, by any chance? We're on Chapter 5 now. Shall we, shall we progress? Uh, yes, I think we will. Just quickly having a look at some more of the thing. Um, only one used for white bread, thick-cut toasted butter and marmalade. Oh, only one use for it. Yes, I guess that's true. I, I, since I've started making my own bread, I haven't gone back. I still make my own bread. I made a loaf yesterday. And it's lovely, you know, absolutely wonderful. Hat Shepsut. Hat Sheposut, or something like that. Something like that. Anyway, thank you. Um, this is Chapter 5. Workmen of the Small Town. This is a quote to begin with by Ecclesiaticus, whoever he might be, or Ecclesiatius. I, I can't pronounce it. It's probably Latin, is it? All these trust to their lands. All these trust to their lands, and everyone is wise in his work. Without these cannot a city be inhabited, and they shall not dwell where they will, and go up and down. They will maintain the state of the world, and all their desire is in the work of their craft. Ecclesi... Ec ec I can't even begin. Ec... Ecclesiasticus. Ecclesi is it Ecclesiasticus? Is that his name? Who knows? Between the Reekin, which is in Shropshire, and the long double ridge of, Len of Wenlock Edge, which is also in Shropshire, lies a patch of primeval England whose history is more curious and significant than are any of the tidal tales of border warfare a score of miles away. Um, oh, OK. Here, from Coalport, on the east to the Cistercian Abbey of Bilwas, west of it, the Severn has ploughed a narrow furrow through the coal measures and runs swift, straight and shallow through a gorge of lofty cliff clothed on the north bank with a forest, that, I think, is what they call now the Iron Gorge. The two mountains, the one a range of Paleozoic limestone, whose northeastern end abuts on the river, the other a sandstone hog's back, which is the central boss of the whole county, are the enormous gateposts of the region. The great river slides by the forest precipice of its southern bank, while the bristly spine of Wenlock limestone has dark woods that climb even higher. The solitary, solitary grandeur of the Reekin Mount looks across the maze of dingles slipping deviously down to the gorge. This 
almost savage majesty, together with the confused and convulsive geology of the region, so dramatises the scene that Bishop Percy's reputed discovery of the relics of English poetry at Schiffnall, on the plateau above the George, seems more than an accident. The wild Seven Gorge seems to cradle their passionate rhymes. A bit poetic there, isn't it? Something happened at this one spot that changed the face of the world. The Industrial Revolution began in the Seven Gorge. If it began elsewhere at much the same early period, all traces of that gigantic and demoralising accession of power have been effaced by later developments. But not here. The revolution began here, but it stopped dead. Ironbridge today is still more or less as it was in the 19th century. It was one of the first settlements of a revolution which was to obliterate local variety and individuality over the world. Well, that is, a, that is an interesting and um, different perspective that I've ever heard about Iron... Um, uh, what's it called? Ironbridge. Yeah, Ironbridge Gorge. Uh, that yeah, and it, yet it's true. You had all those old. Cro- so I know what he's leading up to. Uh, up until the Industrial Revolution and ironworks and mechanical stuff, you had all this old craft, and then mechanization came in through through people off the land. I'm sure that's where he's going. And as a result of all of that, people went into towns. Let's see if I am in any way right. If you're enjoying the reading, do give me a thumbs up, by the way. That would be very helpful. The wooded cliff off the north bank is what it was when Derby's great iron bridge was building in 1779, as it was when the Iron Age Godels named the Seven. Had that steep and conical woodland been felled, the cliff would have slipped and slid into the river. The south bank, with its irregular terraces and brick and sandstone houses strewn as though dropped out of a sack along a narrow wharfage and over the face of the Gibraltar-like rock, presents a surprising spectacle. Progress stopped progressing immediately after its first tremendous bound. Progress became obsolete and derelict. There is a blast furnace not far away and steelworks at Maidley. Now, the blast furnace I did a video in, by the way, but uh, neither really dominate the scene and it's probable that the brick of many of the houses came from the Maidley clay pits. They can be called neither beautiful nor ugly. They are transitional between one and the other, between the new diffused uniformity and the old local traditional variations. The transition occurred on this very spot, but it froze. So we see it today as we see a drop of water in a cave falling a million years ago. Here are derelict kilns with Bushes sprouting through their brick courses. Slag tips pimple the uplands, which are moulded by nature's green fingers into the landscape. Relics of a few beam engines here and there remind us of how steam power, which is local and durable, was pushed out by the internal combustion engine. Bolton and Watt's beam engine became the works of Wilkinson, the ironmaster, and Ironbridge became so because the smelting of coke out of the shallow carboniferous deposits of the gorge replaced by smelting by wood, probably from the oak of the wire forest, forest, ramparting Budley on the south. Iron had also entered the soul of Wilkinson that he was even, I gather, buried in an iron coffin. But it was the local ironstone that made iron bridge, not the imported pig iron that now makes steel. Wilkinson and Darby of the iron bridge were still local craftsmen who jumped from wood to coke, but not out of the land where they were born and worked. 
Coal and, lime, coal and ironstone had been used in Colebrookdale since the 20th century, and the art of cut... Sorry, coal and ironstone had been used... Coal and ironstone had been used in Colebrookdale since the 12th century. No, sorry, not the 20th Since the 12th century. And the art of casting iron by smelting the ore in coke furnaces and pouring into moulds remained an art and so became a wedge within the Industrial Revolution. This is the whole point of what we see and we see it supremely in the iron bridge that spans the river to this day. In fact... It can be seen twice over. In one of the houses of Ironbridge, there is a magnificent series of coloured prints showing the Ironbridge as it was when first built in 1779. In one of these pack horse, in one of these pack horses, sorry, in one, in one of the oh yeah, in one of these pack horses, sorry that. that standing by the bridge while the river barges are being loaded. Oh, sorry, in one of these, it's the way it's written, the paintings, pack horses stand by the bridge while the river barges are being loaded and men cross planks between wheelbarrows with a pole at each end. With what dignity the hundred-foot span of the great bridge with its soaring and dipping arch, the flanking arches and the abutments of stone sheeted with iron catches itself and focuses the grandeur of the river gorge itself. At twilight, sometime the steam moves under the iron bridge in the plates... Uh, I, meant, I read that wrong, sorry. Getting to that point where I'm now cocking up the reading. apologise. At twilight, sometimes the stream moves under the iron bridge in plates of beaten gold embossed with silver and overarched by this black rainbow. The work of man is not to be belittled by the superb gesture of nature whose river had carved out the cliffs. It spans them, and by the interplay between man and nature is a symbolic expression of man's place in nature. He manipulates and he manages nature, but all is still in harmony between them. The break is not yet. Man, armed by the revolution, has yet to confront nature in the ambition of its quest. If the beauty of the bridge has been the chance of the artist in the prints, its utility and craftsmanship appear when you walk down the footpath of the bank to where the arches take off from their buttresses. It is not conceivable that cast iron work on this titanic scale could be executed today. The smiths of Vulcan might have bridged the sticks with it, so solidly has it been spanned years the smiths of Vulcan might have bridged the sticks with it, so solidly has it been so solidly has it spanned the years from the dead beginnings of the revolution to the living present. As you follow the line of the arch, the meaning of the whole gorge can be deciphered as clearly as the inscription cast upon the iron at the apex, which it does say cast by, um, what's his face who does it, Derby. Uh, it is that English craftsmanship, it is, it is that English craftsmanship's, it is that, it is that English craftsmanship survived the revolution in its initial stages and even gained strength from it. Its roots held firm. The continuity was not severed. The pious faculty of mastership had not yet surrendered to the acquisitive passion that put man in bondage to his own discovery of cheap power. The goodness of the work itself was still dominant. The glory of that continuity makes the heart leap as the arches leap across the river. In the majesty runs... In the majesty... In the majestic... Sorry. In the majestic ruins of the Cluniac Abbey at Much Wenlock, tucked under the edge's northern tip, is an early 12th century... Lavebo, carved with figures and gospel scenes... They may have been chiselled 
as you watched, so fresh and new they look. The stone was Wenlock limestone, the primary Silurian limestone that than which none is harder. Cotswold elliptic limestone is as a lightly pressed to a hard-pressed cheese compared with it. The later masons preferred the softer Triassic limestones abundant in Shropshire, which have now peeled and scaled like the bark of a plane tree. The Lavebo, I don't know if that's how it's pronounced, and the bridge are fellows in a brilliance of man's handling of the most dour and intractable of natural materials. The bridge is the last powerful token of an English craftsmanship that has lasted up to it without a break from prehistoric times. A few miles away, there is a great marvel as the Iron Bridge itself, namely the survival of that of that same manual power over iron as created the bridge. Northeast of the Seven Gorge, towards the Staffordshire border, stands on the plateau the little market town of Shifnal, not far from the Boscobel Manor and the oak that saved Charles after Worcester. Here work the chain-makers of the old established firm Edge & Sons. It is a fact that if a monk of the Cistercian Abbey of Bill was, it is a fact that if a monk of the Cistercian Abbey of Bill was, at the foot of the gorge, had walked in among these chain-makers at the head of the gorge, there would have been hardly a sign to tell his glance at the sweating and hammering smiths and strikers that he had arrived seven centuries too late. But if he turned up ten years to come, he would find nothing to remind him of home. A new electric plant for flash-welding has been recently involved, which bids fair to make chain-makers of Schiffnell as... Oh, I see. A new electric plant for flash-welding has been recently involved, which bids fair to make the chain-makers of Schiffnell as obsolete as the Cistercian monk. I myself have seen them, only just in time, but I took away with me an imperishable memory of the power of craftsmanship to stand up to the huge developments of the revolution that has destroyed it. The coal port China, the coal port China whose workshops Turner set up from Worcester in 1772 have now gone, and I could only buy it in an antique shop at Shrewsbury. The clay, the figured clay pipes of Brosley are soon to follow, and I obtained almost all, I, I obtained almost the last of them made. The wool of Shrewsbury and the rugs of Church Stretton, the pillow lace and woollens of Bridge North, and the hair weaving of Market Drayton, the bells and wood carvings of Chelmarsh, and the smithying of Ludlow, all these, and the honourable self-help of England with them, are a tale of the past. Not quite yet the chain-making at Schiffnell. The workshops are not at all like the romantic pictures of ye old English smithy. They're just open sheds with corrugated iron roofs. There are those... There are two of those, one for the heavier chains to anchor battleships and liners, the other for lighter chains of many sizes that lie coiled up torturous on the floor like hibernacalcium of the reticulated snakes. The hibernacalcium of reticulate... Reticulated, so I'm guessing that's the skin, is it? That's the skin that's that's come off a snake. Hib Hibernacalcium of reticulated snakes. Along the whole length of the heavy chain shed is along the whole length of the heavy chain shed is arranged a series of hearths, each with its own wooded hooded furnace, water canister, sandbox, anvil, tongs, swage, say, sledge, and other hammers. Two or three men, and sometimes boys, are welding and striking each hearth. The smith hauls the next length of the clanking chain out of the blaze, or as the old term is, blizzy, and strikers, welding their sledges, go at it 
go at the fiery metal with a rhythmic fury, a swing from the torso and a play of muscles glorious to behold. The vapour of the fire wazeth his flesh, and he fighteth with the heat of the furnace. The noise of the hammer and the anvil is ever in his ears, and his eyes look still upon the pattern of the thing that he maketh. He setteth his mind to finish his work, and watcheth to polish it perfectly. I don't know who, what that a quote is from, but it is a quote nonetheless. We've just got a page and a half to finish this section, so I'll just plough on if that's all right. I was so spellbound by the roar of the flames, the flying sparks, the surge of brawny shoulders, the belling of the anvil, the perfect timing, the astounding speed and urgency of the whole operation, that I failed to time it. But these specialised blacksmiths could not have taken longer than two minutes to forge each separate link. This includes shaping with the the swage and attaching the chain and all, the links of an inch and a quarter or under, being joined by bending in the ends, the thicker ones by hammering in the sides. The force of the fire and the weight of precisely adjusted and directed strength turn the ponderable iron into a malleable dough, while the hammers work their will on the anvil like bobbins on a lace pillow. The power is conferred by style. It is the style that forges another link in the chain. Not strength, its instrument. The style is the man, and this is man's work. Least resistance works this miracle of weaving an iron bar into a necklace, not the pounding of brute force. The poise, the correlation, the utter precision of every motion from the swing to blow was a kind of scanison, and each link completed was a metrical close. Metrical close. Airness of flame was matched by fluidity of muscle. The coordinated, the coordinated strategy of the lightning brief process gave every pounce and punch of the whirring hammers a kind of delicacy. A man's job, this play of few and sinew, but also of the artist. What will they do with these men when their anchorage to their half is pulled up? The dole of the assembly line is for them. Then they will cease to be men, for what makes a man is his home and a craft. Lose them and he becomes a mobile unit of a gang. What is education for what is education for but to make me to make men of boys and women of girls. There were several boy strikers tolling and sweating at the shaping of iron. When their fathers hear no more the music of metal, it will be the state school only for them. The author of Cleanliness and Godliness wrote to me the other day and told me the story of the Barusha people's reply when they were told that children in England were made to go to school between the ages of five and fourteen. They said, but that is the time when they ought to be learning things. There was an old man in this communal workshop, but we must be careful with the word communal. What is meant here and ought to mean always and everywhere is the number of independent workshops all working together. And he told me, that he'd been a chainmaker for 32 years, 32 years of bending iron. In winter, sometimes his chest was on the equator and his back was on the polar regions. Always rivers of sweat coursed down his front. But he spoke as though he were pleased about it. At labour so gigantic and furious, these men of iron work only from 6.30 to 11.30 with a break of 15 minutes and consuming in all these five hours... Oh, 6.30 in the morning to 11.30 at night. It's not 11.30 in the afternoon. Uh, and and uh, with a break of 15 minutes and consuming in all these five... Oh, maybe it is. It is only from 6.30 to 11.30 in the day. OK. Um, sorry, I, I misunderstood. 
At labour so gigantic and furious, these men of iron work only, okay, got it, from 6.30 to 11.30 with a break of 15 minutes and consuming in all these five hours 12 pints of beer supplied up to the war by the firm. The chainmakers of Sniffnell, probably Schiffnell rather, uh, probably came originally from Ironbridge, though the firm is from Walport. Like their fellows of Cradley Heath, they began as home workers at their own forges, but the rapid rise of industrialism at the expense of agriculture forced them from their home, first as part and then full-time workers, yet they escaped the, the fate of the nailers in being first sweated and then ruined because of their high degree of skill exempted them from the competition of the machine. Each smith contracts with his own... Each smith con contract contracts with his firm to make chains at so much a foot and also with his own strikers. So, though these smiths are now working for a single firm under the wage system, they retain distant traces of the traditional economy of the master-apprentice self-contained independent workshop. They have brought their pre-industrial past to a present where industrialism is showing marked signs of decay. They represent a stage long superseded elsewhere when craftsmanship for a fleeting period part partnered industrialism. Brief indeed, for the core of industrialism is the factory, and the labour of a factory made efficient and up-to-date is a property-less and skill-less proletariat of men, that is to say, made as like as may be to the machines they serve. So... He doesn't think much of mechanisation, does he? Um, thank you for indulging me to let me get to the end of that bit. I hope you enjoyed that. It was quite, um, it was quite uh, hard to, to read.